0: Welcome to Ag Annex Talks, a podcast brought to you by the agriculture brands of Annex Business Media. Join the teams behind Top Crop Manager, Potatoes in Canada, Fruit and Vegetable, Manure Manager, and Canadian Poultry Magazines for compelling conversations with some of the most important voices in Canadian agriculture. This episode is brought to you by the FCC. Looking for more great ag talk? Check out the FCC Knowledge Podcast, Talking Farm and Food. Join Marty Seymour as he talks to Canadian producers about their lives, businesses, and the lessons they've learned along the way. It's real stories, real people, and real good conversation. Find Talking Farm and Food wherever you get your podcasts or visit fcc.ca slash podcasts. Subscribe today. Welcome to our second episode of this season of Ag Annex Talks. I'm your host, agriculture editor Bree Rowdy, and today we're continuing our conversation on future-proof farming. Today we're looking at planning ahead for major disruptions. Now, we're all sick of hearing the term unprecedented times, but 2020 was the year that unprecedented became precedented. Producers everywhere had to suddenly prepare for a situation they've never found themselves in, whether it was a sudden surplus of product, labor shortages, or supply chain disruptions. While a vaccine rollout means the end of the beginning is nigh, 2020 has caused us all to pause and think. What happens next time? Maybe we won't see another major pandemic in our lifetimes, but the idea of disruption is now looming bigger in our minds, whether that disruption is economic, environmental, or epidemiological. Today, we're going to talk about how we've pivoted under pressure and what we've learned about planning. We start with a conversation with Mike Wind, owner of Windiana Farms in Tabor, Alberta. Are, are there any things that you've discovered along the way that really it's like, okay, this is working or this is something I can sustain into the next couple of years? We don't
1: want to think about the next couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even want to hear that.
0: We then have a conversation with Steve Brackenridge, director with the Ontario Federation of Agriculture representing the areas of Durham, Peterborough, and Kawartha Lakes-Halliburton.
2: People that are involved in agriculture today are very adaptive and, and very quick to turn and to uh,
3: try and create value out of what they're doing.
0: Finally, we chat with Dr. Brian Haifs, Senior Veterinarian with the Minnesota Board of Health.
3: Compound that with pigs that are, are kept around even a week or two weeks beyond their their date for slaughter. They, they continue to gain weight. So. The, the rest of the issue then was we had pigs that were getting
0: too heavy to bring to slaughter. Let's hear a little bit more about what they have to say, starting with Mike Wind. So, Mike, can you kind of give me a little bit of a summary? I know when you last spoke with us, uh, you were talking about kind of the pivot and some of the ways your operations had to change. Can you catch us up to how things have changed since then for you and what uh, what things were looking like for you coming into 2021?
1: okay uh let me go through some of the things that that aren't working so i'll I'll go through that and Mm -hmm. so uh first of all everything is virtual Mm -hmm. uh which is very difficult um, Mm -hmm. because all all our meetings uh, all our our get-togethers as producers which we do during the winter whether that would be our annual meetings whether that would be uh, getting together, uh, you know, learning about new new products that are out there, uh, new techniques—all these things are all done virtual, which which is very difficult. In fact, it in fact is very inefficient. It just doesn't it doesn't work, and I'll tell you why. Because most of the uh, of the collaboration, most of the work is done from grower to grower, one grower chatting to the other, whether that be over a a coffee over a beer over a meal you know what I mean mm-hmm. and so that's not happening now we're not we're, we're not we're not seeing other growers we're not talking to each other mm-hmm. and that's local in, in southern Alberta as well as the meetings we attend virtually all over North America uh, Canada United States so we meet with other producer groups um, it's, and then that's besides the, the, the boards that I'm on that we normally travel in. And we see each other. We we are able to uh, get business done as well as uh, hey, how's it going on your farm? And what are the issues you're dealing with in your area, or in your particular farm? And a lot of times, that's where most of the work is done. Mm-hmm. Is is conversations one to one to different producers, mm-hmm. and that's really that's really really missing. And we really can see the effect,
0: mm-hmm. you know. So, you said you said that was one of the things that wasn't working, are, are there any things that you've discovered along the way that really, it's like, okay, this is working, or this is something I can sustain into the next couple of years?
1: We don't want to think about the next couple of years. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even want to hear that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it works. I mean, it's not like you say you can't do it, it works, it's just, it's not near as good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I guess uh, time is one thing you have a lot, lot more time uh, you're not spending time traveling you're not spending time uh, you know going back and forth uh, you, 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 are, you do have more time so that uh, I guess that that's a good thing mm-hmm. um, I, I can't see a lot of uh, I can't see a lot of things that say hey this is way better now no, no I, I, I don't see that I think uh, that that Personal contact is very, very important, mm-hmm. and, um, and 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 you're never you're never gonna you're never gonna make that up by doing a virtual. You're just not going to. Yeah. We make it work because mm-hmm. we have to, but uh, it's certainly not as good.
0: So now I, I also wanted to talk a little bit about pivots, and I know in uh, in the feature in which we spoke to you, you said that you know your your French fry business uh, was really hurt due to restaurant closures, but uh, you were able to at least. Um, do some good in the in the potato chip realm. Um, yes. So have you, I guess, been able to put a bit more resources into that for 2021 just to make sure you're uh, you're putting all your eggs in the correct basket?
1: Not more than normally. Okay. Uh, no, well, we're always we're, we're always uh, changing things. That's that's the nature of the beast, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're always uh, trying to do things better and more efficient and and, and then the end result, producing a, a better product at a, at, a, at a lower price. So, um, I mean, that, that's ongoing all the time. So the, uh, the French fry industry is starting to come around a little bit, and the chip industry is still doing very well. But um, I see a little I see a little light in the end of that tunnel in the French fry industry where, where I think perhaps um, maybe people are finding a way to buy food French fries, other than the normal uh, going to a restaurant and sitting down, they're finding other ways to do that.
0: Oh, well, that's great, and I love French fries, so yeah.
1: Um,
0: so, th- that's I guess um, what uh, brings me to my last question. Um, y- you mentioned you know, adapting and changing is just kind of the way of the business, so you also said that uh, the idea of thinking about doing this for a couple years is a bit unnerving. so um, I guess I'm just wondering, what is that? Uh, how does that affect your mentality, and what's that like? Um, th- this need to kind of have to continually adapt to all these changes.
1: It's frustrating. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, yeah, it's it's frustrating. Um, the the I mean, you know, as far as uh, traveling with meetings, and so that's that's not the end of the world. It's, it's not as good as I like, said before. But mm-hmm. just the day-to-day business, it, it is very frustrating. It's. Uh, you know after a while, you say, "Okay, enough already. let's let's get back to where things are supposed to be because uh, we we deal with a lot of people every day. Uh, that that would be uh, business people um, you know picking up parts and and uh, d- just doing business where where you you know it's got to be down on the phone now or you know is that if we try to get them to come to the farm if they're not just scared and uh so yeah it's, it's it's
0: frustrating it just is all right well uh that's all i had in terms of questions but if there was anything else that you wanted to add at all
1: uh, i don't I'd, I'd like to say hey you know what this is working great we're okay for a couple of years but I, I can't say it. <laughs> i just can't um all right. and i and i and i know i'm not the only one i know there's a lot of a lot of frustration growing mm-hmm. in the farming community saying you know we we, we we get to get back to normal here mm-hmm. you know um, and so i i don't really have anything else uh, other than that to say we we will produce food and we will do a good job
3: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, i guess uh, the good part about this is that the consumer has found a way to continue to to still buy food and uh, in, in a different fashion but he has able to do that and that's and that's good for
0: so. sure well thank you so much for your time mike
1: Yep, thank you. Have a great one.
0: Bye bye. So while the pandemic has been difficult on the networking and labour aspects of farming, Mike is one of the lucky farmers who has been able to pivot slightly and benefit a little from changing consumer trends. But for a more broad look at how this disruption compares to past events and what farmers around Ontario have learned, let's hear from Steve Brackenridge with the OFA. a little bit of insight into uh, what type of agricultural activity you um, you see in your area of the Durham, Halliburton, Peterborough, Kawartha? Uh
2: Okay, so very mixed um, agriculture in Durham, Peterborough, Kawartha, mm-hmm. Um from very large size uh, farms, big land base, uh, lots of livestock to very small 50-100 acre um, direct-to-consumer type uh, operations. Okay. Um, so it is very mixed, which I think is not unique to all of Ontario was like that. For sure, <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so pre-2020, um, how much would you say producers and growers um, in the region as well as around Ontario were focused on contingency planning and preparedness for major supply chain or labor disruptions?
2: I don't think that was on anyone's mind. And I think if you look at the last... even 20 years just-in-time delivery that uh, you aren't keeping big inventories of parts or supplies uh, on site the industries have evolved to um, pick up the phone order and it's there the next day or maybe even that afternoon so
0: um,
2: that wasn't something that most people had gone the other way
0: yeah i'm I'm very curious uh, because i know it's so hard to imagine pre-covid at this point but um, prior to the onset what constituted a major disruption in the industry
2: uh well um if you look at the the meat industry a major disruption would be uh, a strike or a shutdown at at a packing facility okay so not being able to move their livestock um and a major disruption if you were a grain farmer possibly could be drought or significant rainfall events which delayed or delayed planning or delayed harvest. Okay,
0: So now over the last year um, we've heard a lot of stories from people in the ag industry um, having to make big changes to their business models. Livestock producers have had to euthanize many of their animals. So can you give us a sense at what some of the farmers uh, that you know uh, were looking at?
2: Yeah, I think well, we have a maple syrup supply business so maybe I'll I'll use them as an example. Um, When COVID hit In uh, mid-March was at a time when the maple syrup industry was in full swing and at that time lots of maple syrup festivals were going on or or were up and coming and uh, all of that got shut down so for that industry uh, a good chunk of their marketing initiative or agritourism was completely stopped and for those producers they had to then decide Were they going to continue to expand and invest in capital equipment for 2021, or did they just hold off and see what happened because they weren't able to sell their product in the traditional marketing scheme? As time went along, a good chunk of those people changed their business model and were able to achieve very good sales because people started to want to buy direct from the producer. And, and so they were able to, those that uh, were inclined to develop a business model for direct-to-consumer sales did very, very well. And uh, and so now they're in a position where they're not sitting on inventory from last year heading into this new season. Yeah. Fortunately, they did that because they're probably not gonna have the opportunity for those festivals and agritourism again this year. So, so there's just one industry's um, how they fared right Mm -hmm. and and a complete unknown at a a time of their greatest part of sales if i look at the livestock side they definitely had some challenge because our processing has become very concentrated in very few hands Mm -hmm. and you have one disruption at a processing facility and now you start to back up livestock and that creates a big financial burden for those people because as you well know, when an animal is ready to, to go, it needs to go because it just continues to get bigger and it creates, it has less value if it's held on to for t- too long. Mm-hmm. And, and those supply, dis- those disruptions did occur and unfortunately did impact the, the meat sector.
0: Yeah. So um, now we're basically a year in, we have these vaccines on the horizon, but we all know recovery is not going to be linear, it's not going to be quick. Um, so how would you describe the current mindset of farmers when it comes to preparing for even the next big disruption? How, how much of, I guess, how much uh, real estate is it taking up in their minds?
2: I think for the most part, people have learned to deal with uh, what's going on and they've adapted. That's the one great thing about agriculture is uh, people that are involved in agriculture today are very adaptive and, and very quick to turn. And to uh, try and create value out of what they're doing. Um, It's always been that way. You wouldn't farm today if you weren't able to do that. Um, But the one thing that is probably on most of their minds is that lack of uh, person to person contact because in agriculture you work very isolated. And farmers, you know, not being able to go to the farm shows or to events um, to listen to speaking engagements, those are things that. Are very important for the mental health of, of uh, agriculture and uh, they've had to do that virtually and so probably not so much from a business perspective but more from the mental aspect because we we do work in
0: an isolated work working environment and we've lost that person-to-person contact mm-hmm. and
2: the ability to go to those shows
0: beyond covid whether there's a, a bigger focus going on forward on preparing for drastic disruption whether it's a pandemic or a Big geopolitical event. Um, how have organizations such as the OFA and other similar ones? Um, how are they aiming to kind of help farmers throughout the future, and maybe look at different things to do? Like you said, to create those uh, those person-to-person connections, or maybe provide a few more resources.
2: Yeah, I, and good point. Uh, what the OFA did back in March was uh, they they started out with uh, doing some member surveys, mm-hmm. and they did those member surveys to try and get a feel for, one, what were people thinking, and, two, what did they think their challenges were going to be in dealing with COVID going forward. Mm -hmm. And they did four of those um, from March, and I think there was one in May, but there was four that were done. Mm -hmm. Um, And from that, they they used those survey results then to develop resource and resource uh, tools for people to try and address the concerns that were being showed at that time. Mm -hmm. So the OFA developed a really good COVID um, uh, resource um, page. And so you can go there. You, it's regularly updated with any new government programs that are coming um, with things like how to deal with temporary foreign workers, um, lots of resources that were put in place there. And those were done in conjunction with uh, other industry partners as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those have been helpful. I think people have found that that's been a good thing. So that. Probably going forward, we'll, we'll use more surveys like that to try and forward look at you know what is it that our
0: membership, what is it that people in agriculture need for resources to carry their business. Mm-hmm. Last question. I wanted to get to kind of a fun question or a positive question. <laughs> so when you think about the last year and all of the ups and the many downs, um, what impressed you the most over the last year that you witnessed from Farmers in Ontario? Mostly their resiliency.
2: Um, and Again, I think I said it earlier, uh, it's incredible how well farmers adapt and change what they're doing to overcome the obstacle that's put in front of them today. And I think COVID just showed that uh, it's a resilient, very positive industry, and it has great potential to lead the economic recovery not only in the province of Ontario, but the country itself. Um, it also highlights the the need for the governments to realize that to support that industry we need investments in uh, in rural infrastructure and uh, they need to get on with the job of doing that to support the industry which is going to lead us forward out of this economically. Fantastic.
0: So now that we have the big picture let's zero in on a very specific issue that occurred last year. When restaurant shutdowns and processing disruptions resulted in a surplus of livestock Many producers were forced to make tough decisions on what to do with that stock. Dr. Brian Hayes breaks down what innovative steps were taken and what was learned through the ordeal. So I wanted to start out with uh, some background. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what the situation was like in your area of Minnesota when some livestock producers began having to euthanize and compost their dead stock? Um, What kind of uptick did you guys see? Yeah, so it was it was kind of the
3: perfect storm, if you will, of of disasters that that occurred. Particularly in the in the swine industry, we had uh, we had three plants within about a week's time that normally take uh, approximately sixty percent of market hogs from Minnesota. Um, at these three plants, but they they all were closed because of COVID nineteen infections in their um, their employees. So we had kind of a, a crisis. The the way pig production works is kind of we call it just in time uh, on a just in time basis so we don't have the luxury of uh, other livestock species where you know if, if there's a delay in in the the processing then they can hold on to animals like like cattle can be held on on feedlots for an extra extra amount of time if necessary that's that's not the case with with pigs their their days are are very limited when when they have to move out of the the feeder barns that they're in to allow the next crew to move in so it, it was a it was a, a big bottleneck and and almost a standstill with respect to some of our producers that that caused this this massive uh, backlog of, of pigs and and pigs that that didn't have anywhere to go they're ready to be processed for um, human consumption and and there weren't any plants that were really able to take the the glut of pigs that were that were in the market compound that with pigs that are are kept around even a week or two weeks beyond their their date for slaughter they they continue to gain weight so the the rest of the issue then was we had pigs that were getting too heavy to bring to slaughter Uh, a lot of our processing plants are set up for a very very narrow window of of weight and size pigs that can be processed if they if they get too heavy they're they're not able to be managed on the the equipment and and it causes a bottleneck at the at the processing plant so we had a we had a crisis that we we weren't expecting and, and it kind of popped up somewhat out of nowhere.
0: <laughs> wow now you guys are obviously big proponents when it comes to composting dead stock of doing it in a healthy responsible way so what are some of the things that you taught producers or helped them through during this time?
3: So the, the other unique thing about this crisis so I, I'm a. Senior veterinarian at the Minnesota Board of Animal Health, and, and our jurisdiction lies with with animal health, obviously. And and this was a crisis caused by a, a human health condition. There was nothing wrong with these pigs; these were healthy pigs, otherwise, and and ready for for market. So, oddly, the the Board of Animal Health didn't have jurisdiction over what to do with these these pigs. The the one caveat to that is the the Board of Animal Health is responsible for carcass disposal options in the state of Minnesota so that was that was primarily where we were able to offer advice and and counseling to to our producers so the um, the producers had their their herd veterinarians that were able to uh, give them information and and direction on how to depopulate you know what what methods were were best suited for their particular enterprise Um, and from there we were able to assist them with the the disposal of those carcasses Um, it's important over, over 90 probably over 95 percent of these carcasses actually went into rendering they were they were uh channeled into um the rendering markets where they could be reprocessed or or rendered to be used for uh, animal food and and other byproducts from from the carcass disposal. so every effort was made to to send the carcasses the, the depopulated pigs in that direction to to at least um Recoup some some value out of the the protein that that was otherwise completely completely safe and mm-hmm. and uh, kudos to our, our our rendering partners they were able to upgrade their facilities and and their their shifts to to uh, render 100 percent more they they doubled production at most of their plants so um, that was that was really a, a, a lifesaver for the the whole depopulation effort the, the renderers were the ones that that came in and, and kind of Save the day, so to speak, with with the majority of the carcasses. Um, that being said, we we did see a, a need to offer additional assistance, and that's where the the composting came in. So we have we have a variety of of different options for disposing of of carcasses in Minnesota, but they're not uh, they're not universally available. And by mm-hmm. that I mean different different portions of the state don't lend themselves to different types of Of carcass disposal so for example burial we we do allow that in in certain circumstances but the the way Minnesota is as far as their water table is concerned there aren't a lot of places where you could bury a carcass that wouldn't contaminate the water supply so burial was not a a great fit Um, incineration is another method but uh, expensive and and difficult to come by with with the numbers of pigs that we were talking about and then uh, landfill would be another form, and, and that's that's based a little bit more on the the local ordinances. Some some uh, communities allow carcasses to be deposited in landfills; others don't. So that left us with with composting, which is uh, kind of the, the up and coming disposal method that we're seeing across the country. Uh, we have some uh, good relations with our our counterparts in other states across the country, and. Actually, uh, North Carolina has done a considerable amount of research in carcass disposal as a, a means of uh, getting rid of, of carcasses after a depopulation event, so we were able to glean a lot from their research and and activate some of those those kinds of resources here in, in Minnesota as well
0: mm-hmm.
3: so the, the the efforts that we made then were those those pigs that were not able to get into the the rendering uh, chain were were funneled through a, a grinding and composting cycle that the state had set up at two different sites in in the southern part of the state.
0: Mm-hmm. So if we were to enter a world where livestock producers are preparing for another major disruption, uh, like you said, rules and regulations are different everywhere. So what would you give a producer in terms of general advice on how to approach um, whether or not they should compost, what they should do with uh, their euthanized livestock. Uh, where, I guess, where do they start, and what questions do they ask?
3: Yeah, so I think, I think we've, we've gleaned a lot from our experience over the summer on, on what direction we can, we can uh, give these producers and, and, and where to go. Again, we would, we would completely lean on our rendering partners to, to take up a majority of the, the carcass disposal, with the, the understanding that if if the events that occur are similar to last last summer, and, and by that I mean if it's a if it's a human health event that causes this this backlog of of pigs again, versus an, an animal disease event, there there becomes a very different um, disposal preference in, in that situation. So if we're talking about pigs that are are healthy, not diseased, and everything else is is safe with those pigs, rendering is our is our option of, of choice if if there's a a shutdown, if there's a a plant closure or a backlog because of an animal disease, then rendering is actually taken off the table uh, just for the sake of preventing disease spread. So then composting becomes our main, our main source of, of disposal. It's a, it's a method we can implement on the farm. So we aren't, we aren't hauling disease carcasses um, across, across roads, across the the countryside that might, might spread the disease. Mm -hmm. The, um, the the board of animal health actually has has set up in in the midst of all of the the plant shutdowns and and the events surrounding um, the COVID pandemic. We we do have some um, resources listed on our our website specifically for carcass disposal, and and they give a pretty good outline and and discussion on what direction is best for for our producers. So we we've outlined it fairly fairly detailed, and, and it allows the, the producer to kind of pick and choose what's, what's best for them. Um, most likely, we as a state organization would, would offer the, the state-run grinding and composting option as well. So those smaller producers that don't have the option of, of establishing that kind of um, activity on their own site would have the, the opportunity to, to bring them to a, a state-run and funded
0: uh, composting site. Thank you so much, Dr. Brian Hayes. Thank you so much to Brian, Steve, and Mike for your input on this week's podcast. We'll be back in two weeks for another episode on future-proof farming. I'm Bree Rohde. Take it easy. Keep the conversation going. Check out Talking Farm and Food, the new monthly podcast from FCC. Host Marty Seymour chats with producers from across Canada, highlighting real stories and experiences of farm entrepreneurs and digging into the business management topics you care about. Find Talking Farm and Food wherever you get your podcasts or visit FCC.ca slash podcasts. Subscribe today.